You're listening to the So What Podcast. Maybe an analogy would be helpful. It would be ludicrous for anyone to argue that in the year 1776, there was a new statement about government and about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To say that there was nothing that preceded the Declaration of Independence and it just dropped, you know. You couldn't come into something like U.S. history and make claims like Jehovah's Witnesses are making about Christian theology in the Council of Nicaea 325. That's just not how history works. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. Well, on the heels of discussing Arianism and subordinationism, we thought we'd do something a little different. Instead of moving on in the schedule, we'd like to pause and further discuss a modern form of Arianism, the heterodox Christian faith known as Jehovah's Witnesses, and in specific, a popular online track called Should You Believe in the Trinity, something they use in their door-to-door ministry. Well, before we head over to our discussion, we'd like to thank you for listening to the So What podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast and by liking our Facebook page. Just search for the SoWhat Podcast. Well, let's head over to our discussion. So we'd spent the past two episodes talking about Arius and subordinationism, Arianism, and uh, Arius's Christology. And we mentioned a couple of times that modern examples of Arianism are alive, at least as far as his Christology is concerned, is alive and well in the very well-known uh, group Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they're very well-known because they have a... Uh, proselytizing campaign they call publishing, whereby they go door to door and they share their faith. And one of the things that they are known for is being anti-Trinitarian. And that's not something they hide. In fact, they have uh, a lot of literature written on why Christians should not believe in Trinitarianism. And specifically, uh, their view of Christ aligns very well with Arius's view of Christ I would say that ontological subordinationism. So what I thought would be helpful for listeners is if you're ever uh, in a situation where Jehovah's Witness publishers come to your door and sit down with you and talk about the Trinity, uh, we would like to go through a truncated version of a very popular tract that they use called Should You Believe in the Trinity? So we're going to walk through this and uh, just 
put some comments or some thoughts on uh, whether we agree, disagree, or why. So let me start off by reading, Should You Believe in the Trinity? Unless you've got something. No, I just think if you overlaid all along the watchtower a cover of that during this episode, that could be a nice <laughs> meta. Yeah. That's uh, the injury music. Meta thing to do, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. and then maybe backwards, Take too, and see what it is. Yeah. <laughs> all right, here we go. Should you believe in the Trinity? The Bible was completed in the first century Common Era. Teachings that led to the development of the Trinity began to be officially formulated in 325 Common Era CE, more than two centuries later, at a council in the city of Nicaea in Asia Minor. Thoughts on those first two sentences? Yeah, I mean, the first thing we want to say is that uh, that first line, the Bible was completed in the first century, is is kind of actually pretty cool, I mean, and, and accurate. Uh, some people sometimes present uh, you know, conspiracy theories that the Bible wasn't really put together until the Middle Ages or something crazy like that. But these Jehovah's Witnesses recognize the truth that, you know, the last biblical book was written in the first century. So that's that's pretty cool. Uh, but the problems really come in that second line when they start talking about the doctrine of the Trinity really being officially developed in 325. And while while you know there there may be some truth to that that the official language that the church has come to recognize uh, with precision, speaking about the Trinity, might not have been formulated until the Council of Nicaea and later Constantinople. Uh, the reality is the the doctrine of the Trinity was present in seed form uh, in the Apostles' teaching. And uh, we discussed this in our first series through Creeds and Confessions on this podcast. But, uh, but immediately the Apostles began proclaiming the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they take that language from the Old Testament, Yahweh, translated as Lord or Kurios in the Septuagint, and appropriate it uh, to, to talk about Jesus. And, and a text we've, we've mentioned in the past is uh, found in 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul even takes uh, the confession of Israel, the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, and uh, reappropriates it and interprets it Christologically to say that, for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Uh, Paul uh, immediately confesses uh, the deity of Jesus Christ, and that's present there in the Apostles' teaching completely. So, now the doctrine of the Trinity is really early, uh, way earlier than 325. So it continues, according to the New Catholic Encyclopedia, the creed attributed to the Council of Nicaea sent out the first official definition of, quote, Christian orthodoxy, end quote, including the definition of God and Christ. I mean, there's a, there's a kernel of truth in that the Council of Nicaea and the creed the Nicene Creed produced, as we discussed in the previous episodes, was the first universally assented to creedal formulation after the New Testament, mm -hmm. that is. Mm -hmm. So what you would need to do in your historical investigations is to determine, does what the Nicene Creed affirms and or denies in relief encapsulate the teaching of the New Testament? and of the church fathers in the first and second century right. that precede them. Is this yeah. a summary of what was believed and held, or is this the introduction of new theology that right. is foreign to yeah. the development of Christianity? I mean, no one's going to deny that Christianity and theology develops over time. And as we talked about from the first episode with David Wilhite forward, a lot of these or the majority of these creedal formulations are in response to teachings that are new and that are seen as deviant from orthodoxy. So there's, a, there's an orthodoxy that is present throughout, 
but it doesn't become formalized in certain ways until there is teaching that arises mm-hmm. that seems to cut against what Christians always everywhere have held. Yeah, so that, that portrays it sort of in a way to suggest that you know, for over 200 years nobody thought anything about the relationship between God and Christ. Um, all of a sudden these guys in 325 come out with this statement and yeah. nobody's really said anything about this before and they've just defined it for everyone and that's the end of the story. And, and, and it's really quite inaccurate because for the entire period in between the completion of the New Testament canon and the publication of the creeds, they were wrestling with that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tertullian especially was wrestling with and responding to um, questions related to the relationship between the Father and the Son. So the church, you know, the, the creeds could be, uh, and I think I would want to say they are more helpfully summaries of the conclusions of the first three or four centuries not formulations yeah, of them. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're sort of, you know, formulations to summarize mm-hmm. the conclusions of several hundred years of reflection, not sort of out of left field definitions that mm-hmm. are imposed on everyone. Yeah. So the tract goes on to ask uh, why it was deemed necessary uh, to define God in Christ centuries after the Bible is completed. And it says, when Constantine became sole ruler of the Roman Empire, Professed Christians were divided over the relationship between God and Christ. Was Jesus God or was he created by God? To settle the matter, Constantine summoned church leaders to Nicaea, not because he sought religious truth, but because he did not want religion to divide his empire. The first thing that strikes me is, you know, whatever Constantine's motivations, the in the providence of God, if he wants to use, you know, Emperor Constantine to bring clarity to the church's reflections. I don't have a problem with that. Right. I don't care what Constantine's motivations are. What if was it, uh, you know? Judas's motivation? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I trust Athanasius's motivation. Sure. And, you know, how often, you know, so even if a corrupt politician with ulterior motives calls together uh, the bishops and says, hey, I need you guys to do this, and they sit down and take that task seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me of um, the English Reformation, which was born out of a king wanting a divorce. And Cranmer comes along and gives it a real theological foundation. Yeah. Uh, you know, what did it start in the best of uh, circumstances? Are the motivations of the king pure? Well, certainly not. But here's a bishop who comes along and does a really good job and helps us out and gives us things. Capitalizes like the book. Yeah. on this. Yeah, mm-hmm. on the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I see a, that as the work of God's providence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a classic problem trying to discern how much of Constantine was genuinely converted and desired for pious reasons. A Christian empire and how much was it political savvy and convenience to unite factions you know the the Council of Nicaea is instigated by Constantine's demand that mm-hmm. the, so some of what that pamphlet is saying is true there was a division in the third century over how Christ's relationship with the father should be understood Constantine desired a unity on this matter because Christianity had recently been adopted as the official religion of the empire and so he ordered the bishops to get together and make a statement about it that could receive universal affirmation from all those in the churches. Constantine wasn't baptized until on his deathbed, but it was common to withhold baptism during that time as well because of its, uh, you know, you wanted to make sure someone was thoroughly understood the, the weight of what they were initiating in their life, you know. And there's, he was also a ruler where he had, you know, 
political and territorial and governmental and you know regular ruling concerns, not just theological ones. So sure. maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses should read Lightheart. He has a book called Defending Constantine. I, uh, you say that. Send them a copy of it. It's interesting because in, in a very recent um, track that the Watchtower Society published, they quoted, was it talking about issues like this of how Christology developed within Orthodoxy. And they quoted, they called him one professor. Lightheart? No, 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 not oh, Lightheart, no. but this will this will be interesting to you guys and hopefully most of the listeners. A professor who agreed with the Jehovah's Witness position that Christology developed over time, that Christ became divine, sort of like a theosis type thing. And I, <laughs> I, I punched in verbatim. I took the quote from this one professor because they didn't identify who he was. I punched in verbatim into Google, pops up, Bart Ehrman. Oh, that's good. Of all people <laughs> that you would invite into your track to convert people to Christianity on the basis of Christology, you have invited Bart Ehrman into the conversation. <laughs> so they might have, actually. Good I don't times. know. I don't know. Maybe they should get Ehrman and Lightheart together. That would be amazing. Just have yeah. a watchtower party. <laughs> so the article continues, but it has this sort of bubble quote in the middle of the text that simply quotes 1 Corinthians 8, 6 as saying this, to us there is but one God, the Father. That's all it says. That's all it says. <laughs> yeah. Thoughts on why, why that would be a problem. <laughs> yeah, like, like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, this, this verse is a really important text, but it continues on. It says, to us there is but one God, the Father, and a little later, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. So... Yeah, they sort of selectively quote uh, something to prove their position. Okay, so that's the other half of the verse that's missing in the tract might clarify Paul's thought there that, you know, calling Lord or Christ Lord and talking about it in terms of God, yeah, might have been helpful. I mean, straight up, I just pulled up the Greek. It's the first clause in a sentence with like four or five clauses. Right, right. So, <laughs> yeah, missing part of Context it. is everything. Sure. Now, that's an important point. If you want to fortify your argument, then selective quotation mm. is a great asset. In, in that's bubble, right. You know, you can... In bubble quotes. You can cut up this podcast and make Which us I all will. sound like Arians. I will. Have, because yeah. you can just For exclude kicks. all of the clauses where we... <laughs> Bonus uh, content. I yeah. It. Qualify a statement that's I been made or discuss that. it. So It continues, Constantine asked the bishops who may have numbered into the hundreds... To come to a unanimous accord, but his request was in vain. He then proposed that the council adopt the ambiguous notion that Jesus was of, quote, one substance, end quote, with the Father. This unbiblical Greek philosophical term laid the foundation for the Trinity doctrine as later set forward in the church creeds. Indeed, by the end of the fourth century, the Trinity had essentially taken the form it has today, including the so-called third part of the Godhead, the all lowercase Holy Spirit. The word homoousion is not in the Greek New Testament. So that's, that's true. That's correct. Neither is neither is the word for incarnation or for Trinity. Or Bible. Or Bible. Yeah. yeah. Uh though probably Biblos for book is Biblos is there, I'm sure. There. Yeah. Um so perhaps more importantly for Jehovah's Witnesses, the word Jehovah is not present in the Bible as far as the pronunciation of a J. I told a couple of them that one Touché. time. I didn't appreciate it. <laughs> no. Anyway, <laughs> there's a long, complicated explanation for what that behind about it. The tetragrammaton. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. So. Not cool. 
That's true. That term does not exist in Scripture, but it doesn't mean the concept doesn't exist. Right. It doesn't mean that with the introduction of that term into the creed, which was new, it represented the introduction of something that was also new and had not been believed prior to 325 AD, mm-hmm. namely that the Son of God, along with the Spirit, were co-eternal and fully divine, which, though it was debated in the 4th century, was not something that just was snatched out of the air sure. as, well, this would be, you know, I want to go against Arius, so I'll just... Arius was seen as the outlier. He was the one who was being excommunicated because he was introducing something that the church said is unacceptable and out of step with the gospel and the New Testament and the previous centuries of Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. Can, can I just throw something in about usia? Usia is a noun that um, is formed from the Greek verb to be, a me. It's like a, you know, not a conjugation, but a, you know, it's, it's, it's etymologically related mm-hmm. to a word that is all over the Greek New Testament. So, Okay, so the those five letters usia aren't in the Greek New Testament, but so what? Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it it is etymologically related to word to one of the most common words in the Greek New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's like that's it's just and, and so they distract you with really silly, irrelevant things. Yeah, and, it's if, ironic too because it's related to ami. Yeah, which is ego ami. In arche, ain <laughs> ologos. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So ain is an ontological. Usia. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, the the word in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Mm-hmm. The Greek word ain comes from a me is a conjugation of a me, mm-hmm. and usia is a noun that comes from a me. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's there's it's it's not as if there's just this sort of out of left field philosophical concept. Yeah. Not only not only that, uh, and this is where I thought you were going with it, Matt. But it's related to the famous answer that Jesus gives the Jews of ego eimi. So Jesus is speaking with Jewish religious leaders of his day, and he's talking about Abraham and how Abraham rejoiced that he would see Jesus as his day. And the Jews asked him the obvious question, look, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say you saw Abraham who existed centuries ago? And Jesus answers in chapter 8, verse 58, he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, and in that Greek is ego eimi. If you take the Septuagint, the Jewish Greek translation of the Old Testament, and you go back to Exodus chapter 3, when Yahweh reveals himself to Moses, Moses asks, who should I say sent me to, you know, demand the liberation of your people? And he says, tell them that I am sent you, ego eimi. And so you have this confession that Jesus is tying himself, using this I am verb, this a me, both to his existence and his identity. And you typically when I, so I bring this up sometimes with Jehovah's Witnesses and, and basically they say, well, the only thing that Jesus is doing there is he's, he's answering the question with a yes. Yeah, I am. Um, that doesn't fit the context though, does it? If Jesus meant to say, as Jehovah's Witness Aryan Christology would demand, that before Abraham was created, Jesus was created, then Jesus would have said, before Abraham was, past tense, I was, past tense. But that's not what he says, does he? He says, before Abraham was, past tense, I am, present tense. And that clearly is a, is a hearkening back to uh, God's name in Exodus. In my, I've, I've had a 
not as much ex- experiences with Kyle, but repeated experiences with Jehovah, uh, Jehovah's Witness uh, evangelistic teams, and the goal, and and pastors, you know, this is this is I think a key thing. The goal, what they try to do is to cast doubt. Mm-hmm. Well, your pastor tells you this: Jesus and God are this are 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 one. But there's this passage in Colossians that says Jesus is firstborn. So your pastor's wrong. And they're betting on the fact that most people don't think very carefully about the scriptures and haven't been trained mm-hmm. or haven't been taught in the churches to think theologically. They're betting on that. And if they can hook you in on one of these little things, well, that word's not, Trinity's not in the New Testament. You know, usia is a Greek philosophical concept and it creates a little doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's just not... It, it's it you know most of these things are easily resolved, um, but it's 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 a tactic, it's a strategy. I I just had them at my door since moving to Mobile last September. It's We've one had of my favorite multiple things. stops uh, by the Jehovah's Witnesses, and uh, so they stopped one day when the professor of theology was home. So we had yeah we had a nice tea Can five ten minute conversation on my porch, but. W- one of the places I went with them, and I'm sorry if I'm interrupting the tract, and this would apply to later in it. I don't know what else remains no, to be no, read from it. We're good. Um, but as I talk about the title Lord, like yeah. we've been saying, you know, Jehovah is a, a you know historically anachronistic and inappropriate rendering of. Uh, you know, the tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God given in the Hebrew scriptures, yud Hey vav Hey, which we sometimes, or predominantly is pronounced Yahweh, but the name was sacred to Jews. They wrote Adonai instead throughout um, scripture, typically. And the meaning is Lord and could be used of human lords as well as, you know, divine. Um, so that word gets translated in the Greek Old Testament as Kyrios, and the Greek word for Lord, and in the New Testament then is used almost exclusively of, of Jesus. We've made this point on prior podcasts. And so even in that verse we're looking at, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, you know, you have one God and Father, and you have one Lord, Jesus Christ. And almost all throughout, you have these Trinitarian constructions where God is talked about as Father and Jesus is talked about as Lord and the Spirit as the Holy Spirit. So what I tried to get these two ladies on my front porch to see was that your reverence for the name Jehovah and your desire to safeguard this title and uniqueness, the one Lord, is the very language that the apostles adopted for describing Christ, for describing his divinity and his status. And it's the most fundamental confession of the early church. You get it in 1 Corinthians 12, Jesus is Lord. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You know, you even have a Trinitarian um, construction there in 1 Corinthians 12. And that was your fundamental you know, confession before there were the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Constantinople Creed was can you say Jesus is Lord? You can't unless the Holy Spirit has enabled you through regenerating your heart to say that. But to confess that was to ascribe to Jesus the status, glory, divinity of, you know, 
as Colossians says, if you would keep reading in context, our Watchtower Society friends, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Yeah, you know, the fullness pretty. of the deity dwelt in Jesus. And therefore, he is Lord. You know, Thomas, my Lord and my God, in response to seeing <laughs> the that hands is, uh, and the scars. That is Christ. actually interesting. Uh, that's an interesting point. Um, New World Translation is the Bible that will be used um, when Jehovah's Witnesses are speaking to you uh, about their Christology. And John 1.1 is a very popular place to go for orthodoxy. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. New World Translation breaks the Greek grammatical rules, and it translates it as, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a A God. God. And yet, if they were to be consistent in John's gospel, Thomas would not have said, my Lord and my God. He would have said, my Lord and my a God, because it is the exact same uh, formulation uh, in Greek. But yeah, that's, I guess it's neither here nor there. Yeah. My, just to summarize my point, I, I tend to ramble on. The The point is that if you are a Jew in the first century and you hear the Greek word kyrios, and you have a knowledge of the scriptures at all, there weren't the New Testament yet. There was just the the Hebrew scriptures, Kyrios was the name used for God. That was how Hebrew Adonai was translated throughout. And if you heard a statement that this Jesus, whom the Jews had crucified, was Kyrios, Mm -hmm. that would be a scandal to Greeks and a stumbling block for Jews. That type of revelation, which is exactly what Paul says it is in 1 Corinthians 2, because how can you say a man who lived in Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth, and was crucified at the apex of his public ministry was the Lord who created all things, the Lord who led his people out of Egypt, the Lord who descended in a glory cloud in the temple that was built for him, the Lord who was gathering his people and who would... um, Just to clarify for our listeners, the, the word Jehovah comes from the vowels from Adonai and the consonants from yod heh Yahweh. Um, and the Hebrew people would put, take they, they would use the consonants for Yahweh, but they would put the vowels for Adonai on there so that if you were reading along and accidentally began to pronounce it, you wouldn't actually pronounce the divine name because it had the wrong vowels. Right. So, but you, typically they would say Adonai in the place of it. So yeah. we don't um, know, we don't know. How we don't Yahweh, actually yeah. know how the divine, personal divine name was pronounced. We think it was, Yahweh, uh, something like that. But Jehovah is not actually a word in the Hebrew language. Um, it's an amalgamation of two. two Just d- like two Usia. D- yeah, yeah, the, he- two. the Hebrew yeah. scriptures. Actually, in this case, it really isn't a word. <laughs> <laughs> it is a neologism. <laughs> the Hebrew scriptures were written in all consonants. Um, yeah. All of the, the Hebrew letters are consonants. Which makes in the learning alphabet. the language such a joy. Right. Yeah. And so to aid reading, centuries later, they came along and would point the text with dots above and within and below the they letters. didn't originally have those. And that would yeah. help you in synagogue pronounce the words. And so what Matt is saying is they took the, the, the vowels. The vowel points. Points. Yeah. And under the four letters for the divine name, which was not to be pronounced because the Ten Commandments says you do not use the Lord's name in vain. And if you're a good Pharisee, if you're a good keeper of the law, you're going to build, you know, if this, like you tell your son, if you go in the street, you're going to get hit by a car, you could get hit by a car and die. And so we're going to move well back from the street and we're going to build a fence so you don't even leave our yard. So that was what they were doing for their people saying, we're, if you, you might 
use the Lord's name in vain if you pronounce it in a wrong way. We're going to safeguard that by pointing the vowels yeah. so that you can So right now we're sitting that. in a room, and right behind Travis's head, there's a book called Easy Hebrew. Easy Hebrew. And it's a really big book. It's huge. And it's only the first phase <laughs> <laughs> so of Easy Hebrew. It, in the end, if you are a pastor listening to this, one thing that might be good is to educate your people about common ways that Jehovah's Witnesses may try to confuse them in the sense that Christ is a ontologically distinguishable being from God the Father and that the Holy Spirit himself was also created. If you are a, not a pastor, I would just ask, and I'm sure everybody would agree, give your pastor a chance. Give your theology professor a chance. We did not bank our eternal security on the chance that maybe Jesus is God and, you know, set off on a lifetime of blasphemy just because Constantine thought it would be a good idea. So what? Should you believe the, should you believe the Trinity tract? We would heartily recommend that you do not. First, the track naively represents Christian history, in particular the Council of Nicaea in 325, as a conspiracy of Trinitarian Christians hell-bent on suppressing the quote-unquote true Christians, Arians. This Christology, of course, appears well after the Apostolic Era. Might I suggest that this conspiratorial thinking is on a scale proportionate to that of the Da Vinci Code. Furthermore, the tract conveniently leaves out the vast body of biblical references to Christ's ontological identity with God. In this way, it selectively quotes bits and pieces of the Bible without offering its full testimony. Aside from the shoddy treatment of history, as well as cut-and-paste biblical references, this Jehovah's Witness track is, above all, intentionally designed to instill doubt in our minds. Speaking of cut and paste, you'll recall that Travis mentioned the ability to edit this podcast to make us all sound like Arians. You can cut up this podcast and make us all sound like Arians. Well, he was right. It wasn't that difficult. Take a listen. What that pamphlet is saying is true. Arius produced the first universally assented to creedal formulation, what Christians always everywhere have held, that this Jesus is not God. Mm -hmm. Christ is a ontologically distinguishable being from God the Father. These Jehovah's Witnesses recognize the truth that Jesus Christ wasn't really God. And if you don't like that we now sound like Arians, I'll defer to Matt's subtle reply. So what? Well, we hope you join us next time. Well, we seriously hope you join us next time after this when we'll be discussing Pelagius and Pelagianism.